0: Good morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, and I'm gonna read verses 18 through 29. Holy scripture says, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of God and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not called to come up with good ideas, but you have given us your holy, reliable, life-giving, God glorifying word. And Father, we pray that this word would generate faith and hope and love and obedience in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With this particular passage before us, we come to the concluding biographical sketch of Noah's life that had begun in Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, we learned about several generations of the male descendants of Adam through Adam's son, Seth. And most of the brief, most of those biographical sketches were just a few verses long, such as In Genesis 5, 6 through 8, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Noah, however, only got one verse in Genesis chapter 5, verse 32. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth and the rest of noah's life could not be adequately squeezed into one or two verses it had to be stretched out to 95 verses from genesis 6:1 to genesis 9:27 which recounts the events leading up to including and following the flood if you want a succinct summary of noah's life if you put genesis 5:32 7:6 and 9:28 and 29 together This is what you get. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah had lived a remarkable life, characterized by faith and obedience In the midst of a filthy and violent world, Noah had walked with God in a world that did not know God. And now as we bid farewell to Noah, the the great question before us is, what will become of Noah's legacy? Will his sons prove to be faithful stewards of their father's spiritual wealth, or will they squander it? As we look at verses 18 and 19, we encounter the names and significance of Noah's three sons. Noah's sons were previously mentioned by name in Genesis 5.32, Genesis 6.10, and Genesis 7.13. Now, as we conclude Genesis chapter nine and prepare for, cha- for chapter 10, the spotlight turns onto Noah's sons who went forth from the ark with their father. Their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Of course, only eight people survived the flood Noah and Noah's wife, Noah's three sons, and their wives. As they entered the post flood world, the future population of planet Earth would stem entirely from Noah through one of his three sons. And therein lies the significance. Of Noah's three sons which is highlighted in verse 19 from these from these three sons of Noah the people of the whole earth were dispersed now there's one other detail in verse 18 that pops up that becomes very important to verses 18 to 29 ham had four sons Japheth had seven sons and Shem had five sons we know that from chapter 10. But of these 16 grandsons of Noah, only Ham's son Canaan enters the account of verses 18 to 27. And so in verse 18, Ham is identified for the first time as the father of Canaan. And this is going to prove to be a very tragic part of the story. After hearing the names and significance of Noah's three sons, In verses 18 and 19. Now, in verses 20 to 23, we learn about the character of Noah's three sons. Of course, a man's character is not determined by a single action. But, a man's character does get expressed in particular and specific actions, and that's what is happening in verses 20 to 23. Ham's misconduct reveals an underlying flaw in his character, whereas the honorable conduct of Shem and Japheth reveals that something is fundamentally right about their heart before God. The circumstance that occasions the revelation of the character of Noah's sons is a foolish action by Noah himself. Keep in mind, though, that verses 20 to 23 is not primarily about Noah. Noah's good character has already been well-established, and yet it is worthwhile to remember that with the notable exception of our Lord Jesus Christ, no man... Who has walked with God upon this earth has done so in a 100% sin free manner. And Noah is no exception. So in verses 20 to, 20 to 21, we learn that Noah became a cultivator and harvester of grapes as a man of the soil, verse 20. Perha- perhaps Noah was a farmer more generally, but what is specifically mentioned is that he planted a vineyard, in verse 20. Noah was a vineyard planter, vineyard cultivator, vineyard harvester, and then finally a winemaker. And it's important to be clear that up until this point, Noah's vineyard work and wine production are good things. The, the Lord is the one who causes plants to grow for man to cultivate. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. That's from Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. Over and over again, the Bible teaches two important things about alcoholic beverages. First, that they are a good gift from God. And second, that they are potent and must be handled with great care. Moderate consumption is permitted and has God's blessing, but preoccupation with and excessive consumption and drunkenness are foolish, sinful, and destructive. Proverbs 21 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Be not among drunkards, Proverbs 23, 20. And scripture tells us to be sober-minded, 1 Peter 1, 13. Physical sobriety does not guarantee Spiritual sober-mindedness, but physical drunkenness makes spiritual sober-mindedness impossible. As for Noah, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So Noah acted in a manner that was inconsistent with his overall character, which is something that you and I are prone to do at times. In Noah's case, he drank to excess, got drunk, and fell asleep naked. Not Noah's finest hour drunkenness itself is shameful and then his shame is compounded by nakedness H.C. Leupold writes this sobering comment I'm quoting him really thoughtful he says Noah neglected caution He who maintained his ground over against a wicked and godless world, neglecting watchfulness and prayer in a time of comparative safety, fell prey to a comparatively simple temptation which should have been easy to meet. It is not the young and untried Noah who sins. It is the seasoned man of God, ripe in experience, who is here brought low. In our own varied circumstances, let each one of us be careful to maintain diligence and vigilance over our own soul at all times. Now at this point, we should take note of how Genesis chapter 9 continues to echo Genesis chapters 2 and 3. In last week's sermon, I showed you about 11 ways in which Genesis chapters 8 and 9 echoed Genesis chapter 1. Well, the echoes continue in today's passage. Specifically, Genesis chapter 9 verses 20 to 25 echo Genesis chapters 2 and 3 profoundly. And it helps us to understand the lesson of our passage. The first echo, as one commentator pointed out, in Genesis chapter 2, Adam is made from the soil. And in Genesis chapter 9, Noah is a man of the soil. Adam by creation and Noah by vocation are connected to the soil. The second echo. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord planted a garden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And so the first man, Adam, is situated in a garden. And he was called by God to work it and keep it. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 20, Noah planted a vineyard. And now his life is situated in part in a vineyard. The third echo. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit from the tree in the garden concerning which the Lord had said not to eat. Adam and Eve sinned. In Genesis 9.21, Noah drank of the fruit of the vineyard, which he was free to do, but he drank to excess and became drunk, thus walking contrary to the way of righteousness. And so Noah sinned. The fourth echo. At the end of Genesis chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 2.25, before man's fall to sin, it was not shameful to be naked because there was nothing of which to be ashamed. But what happened to Adam and Eve as soon as they ate the forbidden fruit? Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, Genesis 3:7. At this moment, the physical nakedness became a frightening expression of their moral nakedness. Now Adam and Eve knew at a deep level in their moral self-awareness that they had something to hide. They were no longer comfortable in their own skin. They were naked and ashamed. And Genesis 3 raises a very important question. What will you do when you realize that you are naked, guilty, and ashamed? That very important question is addressed in Genesis chapter 3, but that's not our passage today. But it's fascinating to compare and contrast Genesis 9.22 with Genesis 3. Genesis 9.21 concluded by telling us that Noah lay uncovered in his tent. Noah is naked. After man's fall into sin... Clothing became the order of the day. Noah lived in a a world in which human beings were supposed to be clothed, except within the intimacy of the marriage bed. But in Genesis 9.21, Noah acted foolishly and shamefully, and the shamefulness of his drunkenness is expressed in his consequent nakedness within his tent. And it is at just this point that we see a striking echo of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, their their own eyes were opened to perceive their own nakedness. In Genesis chapter 9, after Noah sinned, somebody else's eyes are present to see Noah's nakedness. This somebody is Ham. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, Genesis 9.22. The question that Genesis 3 raised was, What will you do when you realize that you are naked and morally ashamed? Now Genesis chapter 9 raises a related and yet very different question. What will you do when you realize that somebody else is naked? What will you do when you realize that someone else has acted shamefully? This is a massively important issue and how you handle this issue reveals the condition of your heart. As Genesis 9.22 begins, Noah's son Ham sees the nakedness of his father. So the question is, what does Ham do with this awareness? What does Ham do with his father's nakedness and his father's shame? As it turns out, what Ham does is the exact opposite of what he ought to have done. What does Ham do with this information about his father's nakedness? He tells his brothers about it. He broadcasts it. Ham is a tattletale, and it's high wickedness. This leads us to the end of Genesis 9.22, precisely because of Ham's tell-all reporting. Now Shem and Japheth know about their father's nakedness. They shouldn't have known about it, but now they do. They haven't actually seen, and they will not see, their father's nakedness, but they know about it because Ham told them about it. What will they do with this realization that their father is naked? Shem and Japheth prove to be much better in character than their brother Ham. Shem and Japheth do what Ham ought to have done. They cover the nakedness of their father and they go about it in a very careful and honorable way. It says, then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Shem and Japheth knew not only that they had no business broadcasting their father's nakedness to others, but also that they themselves had no business looking upon it and contemplating it. Therefore, they honored their father in at least two ways. First, they did not fix their attention on the symbol of their father's shame. Remember, Noah's physical nakedness expressed his moral shame. And second, they covered their father's nakedness, thus ensuring that no other family member who passed by or peered into the tent would see his nakedness. In both of these ways, Shem and Japheth honored the dignity of their father. And with that, we come to verses 24 to 27. Verses 18 and 19 told us about the names and significance of Noah's three sons. Verses 20 to 23 gave us insight into their character. And now verses 24 to 27 shed light on the destiny of Noah's three sons. Although actually, that's an imprecise way to put it. For here in verses 24 to 27, what we realize is that Ham drops out of the discussion entirely. And this is tragic. At the beginning of chapter 9, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons. This general blessing gives way to a more specific blessing upon Shem and Japheth in verses 26 and 27. But Ham is left out. Ham has walked away from the place of blessing. He squandered his father's spiritual wealth. While Ham is absent from the promise of blessing, Ham's son Canaan is painfully present in verses 24 to 27 where he's mentioned three times. In due course, Noah awoke from his wine, verse 24, and somehow, we're not told how, but somehow Noah knew what Ham had done to him, verse 24. Noah knew that Ham had treated him shamefully and in light of this knowledge, uh, Noah pronounced a curse upon Ham's son Canaan. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers, verse 25. One of the themes that runs through throughout Genesis is the theme of blessing and cursing. God blessed Adam and Eve in chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed Noah and Noah's sons at the beginning of chapter 9. We want to live under the blessing of the Lord, but sin brings us under the curse. The serpent was cursed in Genesis 3:14, the ground was cursed in Genesis 3:17. Adam's son Cain was cursed in Genesis 4.11 and now Noah's grandson Canaan is cursed here in Genesis 9.25. Although we as Christians understand that servanthood and being a servant of all is the way that the Lord calls us to live, in the context of verse 25, the the phrase a servant of servants is not meant to be taken positively. This is a punishment. This is a curse. Instead of being elevated, Canaan is demoted. Instead of being honored, he is punished. Instead of being lifted up, he is struck down. Instead of being exalted, Canaan will be humiliated. In the decades and centuries that lie ahead, Canaan's descendants will occupy an inferior position in relation to the nations that develop from Shem and Japheth. As for Shem and Japheth, they will live under the Lord's blessing. This promise of bless, blessing is set forth in an interesting way. Notice that Noah doesn't directly say, Blessed be Shem, or blessed is Shem. Instead, in contrast to the statement, Cursed be Canaan in verse 25, in verse 26, Noah says, Blessed be the Lord. Canaan is going down, but the name of the Lord will be lifted up and honored. The Lord is worthy of all blessing and honor and praise. The Lord presides over heaven and earth and all authority belongs to Him. The Lord is uniquely and supremely blessed and He alone has the authority to bless others or to curse others. And as verses 26 and 27 unfold, it is evident that both Shem and Japheth are being included within the scope of the Lord's blessing. In Shem's case... The Lord is specifically identified as the God of Shem, verse 26. This anticipates what will become clearer in chapter 11 that the genealogical line out of which Messiah will come will now be traced through the line of Shem. In Genesis 9:26, Shem is honored as one who has a special relationship with the Lord, whereas Canaan occupies a low position and let Canaan be his servant, verse 26. Then in verse 27, Noah says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. This also is a form of blessing. The first portion of blessing goes to Shem, but now a second portion goes to Japheth. That Japheth himself might live in the tents of Shem, within the realm of blessing, in the place where God is known and worshipped. Noah's words convey the prayerful benediction that Japheth will grow in size and stature. The context of chapters 9 and 10 indicates that the pronouncement of blessing on Shem and Japheth and the absence of any blessing on Ham... And the pronouncement of a curse on Canaan goes beyond the destiny of these mere individuals. Because Genesis 9.19 told us that from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And Genesis 10 tells us about the clans and nations that grew out of Noah's three sons. So we should understand that the blessing on Shem and Japheth is a blessing on the nations that will stem from them. The absence of blessing on Ham is the absence of blessing on the nations that will stem from him. And the curse upon Canaan is a curse upon the Canaanites. And you know how the Bible goes. This puts the Canaanites on a collision course with the judgment of God. As Noah's life concludes in verses 28 and 29, he was in a position to look out upon a growing number of descendants. If you do the math... In in the genealogy in chapter 11, it's evident that Noah actually lived to see nine or ten generations of his descendants. 350 years post-flood is a long time after all. But Noah knew that while some of these descendants may have been on the path of blessing, he knew that some were not on the path of blessing. Noah's words, which should be understood as God inspired prophetic utterances through a faithful patriarch, these words set opposite trajectories for sons and grandsons, for nations and clans. Now, having walked through the passage, now we get to consider lessons from the passage. I have to say, There are multiple layers of practical instruction that just shine off of this passage, and we can't get to them all. I'm going to to highlight two specific, very important lessons. Lesson number one, the way that you treat your father has massive implications for you and your children. Let's start to unpack this by calling attention to the obvious. Why is Canaan cursed? Don't don't, don't speculate. The answer is not difficult to find. Canaan is cursed in verse 25 because Canaan's father dishonored his father in verse 22. When Ham dishonored his father, Ham opened the door to a curse upon his son. On the flip side, why did Shem and Japheth experience blessing? Blessing. why, did they, why was blessing pronounced over them in verses 26 and 27? Again, the answer is not difficult to find. They are blessed in verses 26 and 27 because they honored their father. In verse 23, when Shem and Japheth honored their father, they kept open the door of God's blessing upon them and their descendants. Now, in making these observations, I don't mean to suggest that parents' actions lock their children into an irreversible direction. In scripture, there is always the possibility that a child will turn away from the godly legacy of his father, which is exactly what Ham does. And there's always the possibility that a child will make a decisive break from the ungodly influence of his parents and will begin to follow the Lord. Canaan is a sinner in his own right and his descendants will are, are sinners in their own right. And as for Shem's descendants and Japheth's descendants, they would only experience the blessing of God to the degree that they held fast to the way of righteousness. But we have to be straight up when we're dealing with the scriptures. In our particular time and place, we tend to Overemphasize individual responsibility. Individual responsibility is important. It's an important biblical concept, but the Bible also teaches that multi-generational family influence is a real thing. And neither principle, intergenerational influence, and individual responsibility, neither principle should should be allowed to cancel the other out. And the principle that receives attention in our passage is the principle that the character. And actions of fathers shape the destiny of their sons. Dads, learn from Ham. If you dishonor your own father, you just might bring a curse upon your son. Parenting is consequential. The Lord visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. Exodus 25. On the other hand, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments, Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it, Proverbs 22:6. 6. The character of one generation is consequential for the next generation. As part of this lesson, we need to reckon with how much value God places on honoring one's parents. Honor your father and your mother, Deuteronomy 5:16. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, Deuteronomy 27:16. And remember the the larger context of those instructions. It's the responsibility especially of the father but also of the mother to teach you the ways of the Lord to train you in the good way that you should go, to guide you and set an example for you. If you have godly parents, then receiving instruction from them is key to the development of your own godliness so that in due course, you can disciple your children. Ham's father was not a loser. Ham's father was a righteous Man who trusted God and walked in obedience to God's commands. Noah had a rich legacy of faith that he was able to hand down to his sons. Noah walked with God and central to walking with God is the experience of God's grace. When the Lord said that in Genesis 8:21, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, Noah was not an exception. Noah was a sinner like everyone else. The crucial difference, of course, is that Noah had learned to trust God, to depend on God's grace, to turn away from his sin and to walk in the ways of the Lord. Therefore, Noah's life really did stand out from other people because he had been transformed by God's grace. Noah's righteousness was not a pseudo-righteousness of which he was proud. That's not righteousness. Noah's righteousness was a righteousness born of grace. Expressed in humility and characterized by joy in the Lord and love for other people. If Ham had stood in the legacy of his father's faith, if if Ham had stood there with his father in the riches of God's grace, he would not have shamed his father at the point of his father's failure. But Ham was a stranger to grace. And so when the moment of his father's failure came to his attention, his instinct was not to pour grace on his father. His instinct was not to restore and uphold the dignity of his father. His instinct wasn't to cover his father's shame. In this heart-revealing action, Ham demonstrates that he had not received his father's spiritual wealth and therefore had no such wealth to pass on to his own sons. Jonathan Sephardi comments that, and I'm quoting him here, the immorality begun by Ham and extended in Canaan developed to a revolting degree in the Canaanites. Canaanite culture involved unhinged sexual perversion and also child sacrifice. The indecency of one generation, as in the case of Ham, if left unchecked, will grow into gross immorality in the generations that follow. When a man turns away from the godly legacy of his father, that man brings trouble on his descendants. When a congregation turns away from the faithful heritage of its founders, it brings trouble on the kids. When a nation turns away from the righteous principles of its forebears, it brings trouble on the rising generation. Humble, gracious, and wise people do not live in the illusion that their fathers, founders, and forebears are perfect people. They weren't, and we know it. But we know how to honor and uphold the dignity of these good but flawed men. We know how to walk backwards and cover their nakedness with a garment of grace and not parade their failings in view of the public eye. But the unrighteous hams of this world pay attention to what's going on. The unrighteous hams of this world actually want to publicly shame the righteous Noahs of this world by parading their failings. You must not get caught up in that. Instead, love your children by honoring the faithful men and women who have come before you. That's the first lesson. And I think the second lesson is actually even more important. Here's the second lesson. The way that you relate to other people's shame is a huge deal and reveals whether or not you understand the gospel. Reveals whether or not you are rightly related to the Lord. This this gets to the real heart of this passage. Every single one of us is sinful. Every single one of us has done shameful things. Every single one one of us will blow it again. Again to a greater or lesser degree at some time in the future. And sometimes, like Ham, you will see someone's folly and shame. At other times, like Shem and Japheth, you will hear about it. And the question is, what will you do? Just think about all the ungracious ways of responding to the failings of the people around you, particularly your fellow believers. Of course, one Response that is typical of the world and worldly people is they actually redefine good and evil in such a way that they don't see the failing as an actual failing and they end up celebrating what is objectively shameful. The world is always glorying in its shame. But among those who recognize that the failings of others are true failings, there are a number of ways to go wrong. We might be glad that someone has failed. I never liked him anyway. We might be overcritical and condemn the person. We might choose to never forget that person's failure, but to always hold it over their heads and be ready to use it as leverage in future interactions. We might decide that another person's failure makes for really interesting conversation with other people. Can, Can you believe what he did? I just don't understand how how he could have done that. We'd We'd better take time to pray for that person, don't you think? We might use another person's failure to discredit them, cancel them, or exclude them from our lives. And I'm here this morning to tell you, my fellow Christians, that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it must not be so among us. We have no business brokering in other people's shame the way that the world does. And just so no one walks out here with a misimpression, I am not talking about situations where a person's unrepentant conduct poses an immediate and acute danger to other people. Okay? An active shooter, an active abuser, an active con artist, an active false teacher must be met head on and opposed in order to protect other people. I'm not talking about turning a blind eye to that stuff. I'm, what I'm talking about is a thousand situations in which someone within our family or church family has blown it, acted shamefully, messed up, and frankly, No one else needs to know about it beyond those who already do know about it. And the question is whether you're going to use your knowledge of the situation as ammunition to shame and injure them or mock and slander them or whether you're going to use the knowledge of the Lord to cover their shame. And you see, this brings me to another echo of Genesis 9 in Genesis 3 that I have held back sharing with you until this very moment. In Genesis chapter 3, what did the Lord do with Adam and Eve's nakedness? He covered it. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Genesis 3, 21. Now in Genesis chapter 9, we learn that Shem and Japheth do what God does. In their own small but important way, Shem and Japheth do what God does by taking a garment and covering their father's shame. And that gets to the important issue here. If God has clothed you with garments of righteousness, if he has justified you through the blood of his son, If he has adopted you into his forever family. If God has forgiven you and cast your sins into the depths of the sea. Or put them behind his back. If God has separated your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. If God doesn't treat you according to what your sins deserve. But pours out an abundance of grace and mercy upon you. If God has set you apart and put his own spirit within you. Then, who in the world do I think I am to do anything except to echo God's gracious treatment of you? Of course, only God can decisively and definitively cover your sin and guilt and shame. Only God can save you. But if He has, then I must reflect and apply God's grace by resolving to cover your shame and never making sport of your failure. Do you understand? Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 Above all... Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8 Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 10.12 Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 17.9 Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Colossians 3.13 Further, when we realize that God has been unspeakably gracious to us then how can we do anything but extend grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you Ephesians 4:32 Jesus bore our shame in order to cover our shame Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians five twenty-five to twenty-seven. We must be a congregation that glories in the cross, and to glory in the cross means to glory in sins forgiven, to glory in guilt removed, to glory in shame covered. And then in our many varied interactions, one with another, we will consider it a privilege to do the equivalent of walking backwards and putting a garment of grace over a brother or sister who has blown it and never make mention of it again. If, and only if, we live in this manner, we will leave a legacy of rich, blood-bought, shame-covering, soul-transforming grace for our children and grandchildren to grow up in. If we do not live in this manner, be assured that our influence will run in the opposite direction. Let's pray. Father, this is a glorious text. Oh, that we would find this call upon us compelling to be instruments of grace and mercy to the members of our family to the members of our church family to celebrate the grace of the gospel in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.